Hi, this is Sean Benson from Harvest Church in Warrensburg, Missouri. I want to thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. For more resources, log on to harvestwarrensburg.com. Well, uh, for those of you maybe joining us or those who eventually will see us online, uh, we are actually in a core value series. Did anybody remember that? We've been in our our core value, our second core value of of family. We've been talking about the necessity for connecting together, of what happens when we're in community together, that God has actually designed this thing called the body of Christ to be family. Now consider this for just a second. In the very beginning of time, in the very beginning of time when God created absolutely everything, there was only one thing that he said wasn't good. He created it and he said it wasn't good. Do you remember what that was? It's not good for man to be alone. And immediately, obviously, he rectifies that by creating a a wife for the man. Uh, But by extension of that, he's now actually created family. And then then again, extension of that is community. So God actually was expressing something there. He was expressing that his intent, excuse me, the design of God for humanity was that we would operate together as a family in a place of community. So that's kind of what we've been talking about a little bit. The truth is, we're happier together. There's a reason why gang members get hooked up in, gang, in gangs. You have people who actually love you and protect you and call you in, you know, into this thing called family. You have, you have something you can lay your life down for. You have people who can sharpen you and protect you. We are healthier together. We think better together. You know, these core values that we've been talking about, they, they actually create culture. Like these are the values that create culture, not only here at Harvest, but everywhere. Core values ultimately create culture. One of the things that culture does is it actually sets parameters and it pushes people either in or out depending on their personal core values. So for example, around here, if you didn't know, we we believe that God wants to make every individual whole. We believe he paid a, a great price for that. You know, that he gave himself for you so that by his stripes you could be healed, spirit, soul, and body, reconciled to him in spirit, physically healed in your body and in your emotional realm, right? So if we have somebody who comes through the front door and into this environment and they're like, no, wait a second, no, all of the gifts have ceased, like the, like the atonement didn't provide for you to be made whole, that's something that happens, you know, years down the road once you die and enter into heaven, how many of you know we've got a cultural clash now? And, and they will, like the culture, if we have done a good job leading this place, the culture here will, will either, again, push them out or pull them in, kind of depending on their own preference, you know? And the culture will begin to challenge that notion. Like, no, wait a second. Actually, you know, the Bible says this. Isaiah 53 says, by stripes we were healed. That's confirmed again in Matthew. Jesus didn't, you know, that's all he did in his earthly ministry. Yada, yada, yada. He's not the God who changes. He's the same yesterday, today, forever, right? And it's going to begin a dialogue that that person will either go, wow, I've never heard of that before. Or they'll go, nope, I'm rejecting that entirely. And then they won't want to be here. Culture actually moderates your core, is moderated by your core values and it moderates the environment. Does that make sense? So this is a family that not everybody will want to be a part of, and that's actually okay. We alive? We okay? We've also learned a little bit in this series so far that it's also within this culture, it's within the context of family, that God has actually intended for discipline to happen. Discipline was never meant to happen outside of the context of familiarity, relationship, and family. That was the context it was always supposed to happen in. And to be clear, uh, to continue to reiterate, really, the definition of discipline versus punishment, 
Do you remember? Punishment inflicts pain in order to curb behavior, but discipline actually educates, teaches, corrects in order to change one's mind, which again is the definition of repentance in the first place. Now, with all of that said, what do we do with scriptures like 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Are you familiar with that passage? 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is uh, the, the passage where the Apostle Paul is admonishing the church of Corinth in regard to the immoral believer, it says. The immoral believer. And, and, and in addition to uh, like numerous other harsh things that the Apostle Paul says uh, about this believer, uh, one of the things he says is that he should be excommunicated effective uh, immediately, right? And so it's like, well, what, what do we do with this this kind of scripture, in, in light of everything we've been learning about church discipline and family, and you know, and, I'll, and I want to submit it to you like this as a preface. Anything that we learn throughout the Bible, you can apply this to everything, but particularly in 1 Corinthians 5 as we proceed from here. Anything that you learn, you understand, has to be consistent with everything else that the Bible says. You understand that the, like, there's no doctrine that like, stands on its own as opposed to everything else the Bible says. When we interpret Scripture, we interpret it from the, entire, from the view of the entirety of Scripture, right? And so like, you can't allow one specific phrase or a specific book or a small passage to create a doctrine in your mind. That doctrine has to be consistent with everything that's said. So putting a fine point on it, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 has to be consistent with Galatians chapter 6, which we've already talked about. Remember in Galatians 6, it says if we find someone who's in sin, a believer, that, that we're actually supposed to restore such a one, right? And we're supposed to look to ourselves lest we too be tempted to fall into sin. Remember? You know, it's talking about approaching it with humility, with the aim of restoration, and then being willing to lay our lives down to partner with that person so that we can see them restored, so that we can see their mind renewed. That's the bearing with them part of it. We're bearing their burden with them as we partner in discipleship to bring them into a new phase of their thinking and then ultimately a new phase of their behavior. See, any revelation that we get from 1 Corinthians 5 has to be consistent with Galatians 6. And I want to submit to you that if we come to a conclusion that's not consistent with Galatians 6, we've come to the wrong conclusion. Let me add something to this. You know, we, we have the, the ministry of Jesus Christ. We're so privileged to have seen that in the Gospels. And Jesus came, God came in the flesh the Bible says that Father God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Well, what does that mean? It means that Jesus, the Son, and God the Father were always in perfect unity. They weren't a house divided, ever. They were never separated. Jesus never sinned, thus he was never separated from the Father. The two were one. Right? In Hebrews, it tells us that, that Jesus was the exact representation of Father God. They're absolutely 100% in unity. A great practice is to go through the Gospels, and anytime it says Jesus said or did anything, replace it with Father God, and you have, a, you have a full picture of what's actually happening because Jesus didn't do anything except for what he saw the Father in heaven doing. They were completely yoked together as one. What you saw Jesus doing, the way that he interacted with believers in his earthly ministry is 100% consistent with the Father's heart. That also means then, as we survey the entirety of scriptures, if we're coming to a conclusion in one of the passages that we read that is in contradiction to the life of Christ, 
We've come to the wrong conclusion. Do you understand? Jesus came perfectly representing Father in the way that he related to sin, in the way that he related to discipline, in the way that he related to his posse, the 12 apostles. Like everything that he did is a model. Everything that he did is perfect theology. And if we come to a conclusion based on another passage that somehow is in contradiction, we've come to the wrong conclusion. And again, we have to understand this in a deep place when we begin to approach a passage like a chapter like 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's look at verse 1. Now, we only have time to really hit the first three verses. Let me just read it together all as one for you, just to start, and then we'll go back and we'll break it down. Verse 1, it says, It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant, and you have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Verse 3, For I, on my part, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Let's look back at verse 1 then. Let's break it down. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you. The word immorality, and if you're following us on your notes app, on the app this morning, I actually have Thayer's Greek definition of that word broken down for you. Uh, it can get a bit explicit in the definition there, but, but it actually is the Greek word pornea. Pornea. Uh, that should ring a bell for you, because in this country we struggle with a little thing called pornography. Porn, it's the same root word. That's where we get it from. So immediately we understand that what we're dealing with in this context here is actually sexual immorality. It's sexual in nature. Now, let me give you the PG-10 version of that definition for you, right? You know, sexual immorality, as defined by the Word of God, is any intercourse outside of the confines of God's biblical definition of marriage, that being of a man and a wife. Any intercourse outside of that marital context is what is considered sexual immorality. And apparently in the church of Corinth, this sexual immorality had made its way into the church body and it was creating problems. But, but listen to the way that the Apostle Paul defines it. He says this was sexual immorality in the church in Corinth such that wasn't even found in the world. So well, what does that mean? It, it means even the world thinks that this is some crazy stuff that's happening right now. So the, the church is in agreement, like this is absolutely sinful, this is, uh, this, is, this is atrocious what was happening by this believer, and the world's in agreement that it was atrocious, right? Can you imagine, okay, think just for a second, what kind of sexual sin can you think of that the world would be in agreement with the church that this is abhorrent, like this is, we are in agreement, there's not, like this should not happen. Ponder that just for a second, and don't even think for a second that the Roman era was any different than the era we live in today. Same sin ran rampant then, just as well as it does now, right? Why do I bring it up like this? Because that elevates what's happening here. He's saying, the, like, even the world's in agreement with us. There's no confusion in the church about this subject, there's no confusion in the world. We're all in agreement. This is sin. This is a big problem that we're dealing with. It elevates the Apostle Paul's concerns to a little bit higher level here. He says, well, yeah, and obviously you understand that a son is sleeping with his stepmother. 
Yuck. Just saying. Verse 2 says, You have become arrogant. You have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. And the word mourn there is the same mourning that would happen if I were to lose a loved one. He's talking about being deeply moved and grieved by what was happening in the church. I think there's another point in there. He's admonishing the Corinthians and saying, you should have mourned. You should have been deeply moved by this sin. And I wonder when was the last time that any of us were deeply moved by sin, whether in the world or in the church. Moved to the level of mourning over it. I would submit to you that mourning would then cause intercession over the same. When was the last time we were moved, who were moved to such a degree? And, and, and if the answer is almost never, then I think we need to spend some time in the presence of God until our heart begins to beat like his heart begins to beat because we've got a problem. Does this make sense? We've got a problem when we don't see it like he's seeing it. He says this church was arrogant. They didn't, they didn't mourn. They actually had arrogance over it. And so I could submit to you, that means, that means on some level, like, like not only were they not dealing with it seemingly at all at any level, they were, they were also, at least, at least at a minimum level, even by their not addressing it, they were celebrating it. He's like, you've become, you've become arrogant. You should, have been, you should have been moved to mourning. You should have been moved to tears. This should have hit your heart the same way it hits my father's heart. This is a big deal that this is unfolding here. Now, it's interesting that many historical commentators believe that this individual, this sexually immoral believer in the church of Corinth, that he was actually a leader in the church. He was a leader and, and, and a teacher. Well, if that's true, that elevates everything to an even higher level. How many of you know leaders are necessarily held to a higher account? Right? And it makes everything else that we find here make like, so much more sense. Like, like he says, you've become arrogant. And in what sense would they be arrogant then? Now imagine just for a second, we're talking about the church in Corinth, right? The same church that the apostle Paul came to and he was like, listen, you guys got it going on. Like, wow, like, let me bring some teaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit because the power of God's showing up every Sunday. Like God is present in the house. There are words of knowledge. There are miracles and signs of wonder. People are getting healed. There's prophecies and interpretation. Like you guys are moving under the power of God in this house. Now suppose with me just for a second that this individual who was a teacher in the house in that kind of an environment, do you think he was probably anointed? I think it's a pretty safe bet. I would imagine this teacher is anointed. So when this guy takes the platform, you're just like, whoa. God is moving on this guy. He's got this little thing he's doing on the side. But man, oh man, when he takes the pulpit, God moves. You ever heard of a minister like that? I could give you a list of names. I, I, I don't fully comprehend it except that the mercy of God is a baffling thing. Over the years, we've seen so many ministers, unfortunately, who fall. We find out that they've had a homosexual lifestyle behind the scenes, we find out that somebody's sleeping with this secretary and you're just like, I don't understand. How is God moving in power on these people who don't have their life in order? Turns out it's actually in the Bible. 
I don't have to fully understand it to understand that it's a phenomena that happens. Suppose with me just for a second that this man was so anointed, they so liked what he was bringing to the church that it actually created a form of arrogance in them where they were like, hey, we've got, we've got Paul. We've got Paul at our church. He's bringing it, man. May I remind you that this was the church that was like, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And they were all, see, they were all about the, the guy. They were all about the minister with the name. Oh, yeah, but so-and-so baptized me personally. Boom. Hey, how do you like me now, right? That's the church we're talking about here. They were like, you have this arrogant teacher who's taken the platform. Excuse me, arrogant teacher. You have the sinful teacher, but powerful, taking the platform. And they're arrogant because they would rather have the teaching and the anointing from the minister than the godliness and the righteousness that he should be walking in. And they've grown arrogant, and they're actually entertaining the sin. Now, when a leader comes into an environment, and they've opened a door like this to to sin, in this case, sexual immorality, how many of you know it actually opens up a door to the congregation to be buffeted? The enemy actually comes in almost like by invitation. He has a legal right to come in now. And in these churches where we've seen leaders fall into sexual immorality, it's not uncommon for divorce rates to be high and for all kinds of other stuff happening in those congregations because to whom much is given, much is required. Leaders are held to a necessarily higher standard because in this case, I'm responsible for all of you. How could I be the watchman on the gate when I've got a big like, hole in the gate that I have created? And I'm just trying to keep covered up, right? So this is a big deal. This elevates the actions of Paul. And later, as we continue to read 1 Corinthians 5, I think it it just makes perfect sense that this is what's going on there, especially when we get to texts that say something like, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Well, what are we talking about? Well, if a leader's leaving the door wide open, the enemy's just coming in and buffeting people, right? Now, whether this guy's a leader or not, it's, in some ways it's irrelevant, although it make, helps us to, to make sense of what's happening within this passage. Oh, right now he's admonishing the, the leaders of the church at large, and he's suggesting to them, you've got an issue and you're not dealing with it. Like, this is a huge issue. It's an issue that even the world understands as an issue, and you guys don't even find it worthy of even addressing it at all. You're... You're not doing anything about it at all. So whether he's a leader or whether he's just in the church at all, the the truth is he's admonishing them. You haven't done anything about this sin. Now listen, I'm supposing based on what I'm reading here that the church itself was not teaching on biblical sexuality. Pretty fair point? Yeah, because it says that. (laughs) Really good point then. So they're not teaching on biblical sexuality at all. Uh, not from the pulpit and, and not in their one-on-one or their, or their house-to-house space. They're not addressing the issue. What if they had? Do you think the Apostle Paul's uh, admonishment to them would look different? Do you think this letter, 1 Corinthians, would look different had that church actually been teaching biblical sexuality? Yes. It would have looked very different. Now, here's the next question. Do you think that this believer's behavior would have changed had the church leaders been teaching on biblical sexuality? The answer is a decisive yes, because as we read further, in first, in, in, even into 2 Corinthians, we find out that's exactly what happened. When finally confronted by truth and good teaching, the man actually changed his behavior. So the issue really, in some ways, is we've got a church and a church leadership that's actually allowing this thing to go, and they haven't actually done anything about it. 
They haven't stepped into the pulpit to challenge and speak truth, but had they, it would have had a very different result. Now, in verse 3, this is where the Apostle Paul starts to say some weird stuff. He says, For I, on, on my part, though I'm absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. Now, it, it seems to be saying, it seems to be saying that the, that the Apostle Paul has heard a rumor about something happening in a church, and as a high-level leader in the body of Christ, he's rendered judgment on the situation without, actually, without any further investigation. It seems to me it's saying that he's rendered a, a, a death blow and judgment as, a, as an apostle in the body of Christ against a believer in a church context without ever having weighed the facts or had a face-to-face with the individual who is the accused. Now, if the apostle Paul was doing this, not only would it be extremely unwise leadership, he would also be in sin. Why do you, why do you say that? There's Proverbs 18 a couple of passages that tell us precisely that. Now, you need to understand as we get ready to read this, the Apostle Paul had Proverbs 18 at the time that 1 Corinthians was acted out and written. You understand? He had access to these scriptures. The Apostle Paul, who was the Pharisee of Pharisees, who knew the Bible inside and out, this man knew these scriptures, which you can flip to anytime today. It's, uh, <laughs> if I can't give Brandy a hard time, who can I give a hard time? You know, he would have had these scriptures. He knew the word of God. He, he, would, have, he would have known it better, better than anybody. And here's what it says. We'll start with 13. It says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame to him. He who gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame to him. Verse 17. The first to plead his case seems right until the other one comes and examines him. How many of you have experienced that? Now, there's a couple of things going on here. Number one, as a side note, we need to understand and like ingest these scriptures because we breach these scriptures probably every day of our, li- of our American lives. How many times have we heard something come across the news? The president says something. The so-and-so says something. Something happens on social media. You know, somebody drives in front of us crazy or recklessly, and we immediately render a judgment, and we have no idea what's actually happening. And we, in most cases, can't even be convinced that we're not right, and yet we have no facts. What does it say? It says, if you don't have all of the facts, if you haven't heard the case pled from everybody involved, you don't know what you're talking about, and you're going to render the wrong judgment. You know, the Bible has some other things to say about judgment. It says when you enter into the unrighteous judgment, you end up binding yourself. You condemn yourself. You find that you're doing the very same things that you're judging and others. This is a big deal. We need to take these scriptures to heart. We need to begin to change the way that we're operating in life. If you live by Proverbs 18, 13, and 17, you will have a much less stress situation like your life will be so much less stressful there's no room for self-righteousness in the body of christ but listen the apostle paul knew these scriptures but seemingly wasn't doing this so 
the Apostle Paul, like knowing these scriptures, by, by the way, uh, like when you, when you read through 1 Corinthians 5, it, it would seem that, that, that the Apostle Paul, uh, on, on a rumor, is rendering a judgment to immediately excommunicate a believer in a church without ever trying him, without ever you know, doing anything. Like, like, shouldn't he have at least paused what he was doing to, one, have a face-to-face? Doesn't Matthew 18 say that if we have an issue with another believer, we're supposed to go face-to-face? Okay, so there's the first thing that's odd. You know, but but like, doesn't it also say that like, there should be an opportunity granted for repentance? Well, we're not seeing that here either. And, and doesn't it say, like in Galatians 6, that we actually were supposed to be, be gentle? The Apostle Paul's like, get his butt out of here. Bam, get him gone off of a rumor. Shut the door, Katie Bart. That boy ain't welcome here no more. Right? I mean, he's like, that's not, I can't get gentle out of what is happening here at all, and he's not actually even posing an opportunity or a case for restoration. In fact, it goes on a little bit later. We'll excavate these verses in the next couple of weeks. He goes on a little bit later to say, I've turned him over to Satan. <laughs> Kick him out. I've turned him over to Satan so that his flesh could be destroyed so that he might possibly be able to get saved someday. So the Apostle Paul isn't even presenting a case for restoration. He's just hoping the dude finally gets saved maybe sometime by the, before he dies. So, like, understanding that it's folly, that it's sin to try a case, to render a judgment on a case without actually knowing all of the facts, and understanding that the Apostle Paul was the one who wrote all the other scriptures that we've been preaching. How is it that then 1 Corinthians 5 could be such a contrast to everything else that we've been hearing and reading? How does it, like, you don't think that the Apostle Paul was preaching one thing and doing something different, do you? The answer is no. You look like you need a little help. No, he's not preaching one thing and, and doing something else. That's, that's not consistent with the character of the guy who, in partnership with Holy Spirit, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. <laughs> you know, with the guy who literally gave his life as an offering to God and was buffeted in all of the trials and tribulations that he endured. It's not consistent with that man at all to preach one thing and do something entirely different, then what is happening? I want to remind you, listen, when you stumble onto a scripture that looks to be in contradiction with everything else that you've been reading in the Bible, it's an opportunity for you to go deeper with Holy Spirit, the teacher. There's an opportunity here. I go, wait a second. And listen, like, we, we can't read our Bibles with this, like, like, put another notch in my belt, boy, I got the, I got the whole Bible read this year. All in one. That's great. God, that's, that's awesome. I, and I applaud that. I, I, I hope that you're, that you're doing that. I don't, but that's great. You bless you to do that. But you have to then also be doing it for relationship. It can't just be a notch on your belt. Like, oh, I got, my, I got all my reading today. I have no idea what it said in those passages that I read this morning. That's all right. Just head on to the next thing. Now, if I trip over something, there's an invitation to go deeper with God. There's an invitation for me to pause and go, wait a second, like, I don't understand, Holy Spirit. This, like, this is the same author who wrote that we needed to restore such a one in gentleness and be humble and like, bear their burdens and walk with them humbly. And, like, it's the same guy, but it doesn't look like he's acting it out here in 1 Corinthians 5 with this immoral believer. Help me to understand, Lord. How many of you know that the, that the, the epistles particularly were, uh, I said in first service, written with gaps? Here's what I mean by that. 
Did you know that the Apostle Paul was responding in many cases to circumstances in churches that he had privilege to? Like, yep, I know what's happening there. I'm going to write this letter in response to those things. But we don't know what was happening there in many cases. Do you get that? You know, that, that in Corinthians... Uh, particularly, that it can get quite confusing because the Apostle Paul is actually responding to questions that the church of Corinth had. In some cases, he's actually reiterating those questions, and oftentimes we've read it as like it's a scriptural command, but actually the Apostle Paul is restating it as a question and then refutes it. Like, did you know that? If you don't know that, it can get quite confusing. Like, did you know that we're missing an entire letter? That First that Corinthians was like, this, 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 as far as I know, the, the second letter that that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church, that there was an entire preceding letter that actually set us up for what was happening in 1 Corinthians. Did you know that? So how many of you know there's some gaps in there? And if you don't know that there are some gaps in there, you're going to come to dangerously wrong conclusions about what is written in those scriptures. (laughs) There's missing content. So then the question is this. Well, was the Apostle Paul in sin? Did he knowingly break the Scriptures to address this immoral believer in Corinthians? First of all, I would say, I don't know. (laughs) I officially don't know. Oh, wait a second. It's probably fair to take the Apostle Paul down a notch for you. Remember, this is the guy who had pride, right? Remember that he was not superhuman, but human just like you and me. And it was by God's grace that he operated and became something that he could not become on his own. See, Apostle Paul is just a human being like anybody else. He had issues he was dealing with, right? So, like, did he manage everything with Barnabas well? Is the scenario where they had such a heated division that they broke up the team and scattered, like, is that the model for how we should be believers in Christ? No, so, so there are things in Scripture then that, that actually <laughs> that, we need to, that we need to understand. Like, that, like It's actually showing the flaws of the believers who we esteem. You understand? So do I know the answer to that question? No, I don't, but let me give you my opinion. I think we're missing stuff. I don't think the Apostle Paul was in sin. I think we are just missing part of what prefaced everything that we have here. It would seem to me that we have not been privileged to a big part of the process. It's conceivable that the, that the Apostle Paul had been working with the leaders of Corinth for a while now. That he's actually already admonished them. He's talked to them. And they have not done anything about the issue, right? I, I, can't, I can only conjecture. I don't know. We're, we're missing that letter, right? But I can tell you this. I don't think that he's operating outside of all of his other writing on the subject. I think we're just simply missing some gaps. And again, I want to submit to you, we can't take 1 Corinthians 5, which taken at face value is in such contradiction to the rest of the scriptures, and then unilaterally apply it as the method for church discipline for all time. It doesn't work like that. That's not how we interpret the scriptures. And if we were to take it again at face value, it would be in contradiction. How do we reconcile that? at least face value in the way that we have often translated it. That being the Apostle Paul caught a rumor and as an authoritative apostle decided he was going to take the axe to some guy who he had never met face-to-face, talked to, never got the facts, right? That's how we typically interpret this. Again, it's in stark contrast to the rest of his writings, to the gospel, to the whole book. 
This is not how it works. Now, here's the thing. I only had enough time this morning to just open the lid of the thing and let all the peanuts pop out all over you. (laughs) Just to stir the old pot a little bit. So come back next week and I'll open up the rest of it for you because I think that you're going to be surprised just how consistent 1 Corinthians 5 and Paul's actions are with everything else that he wrote. I think you're going to be surprised at the outcome of what actually happens with this immoral believer, how the church responded and, and what happened. What have we learned this morning? Number one, we've learned that we can't take the Bible in any one singular part and create a doctrine that stands opposed to the rest of it. The Bible is not in contradiction to itself. It is in uh, unity. It is in agreement from Genesis to Revelation. There's no contradiction. A contradiction is simply an invitation to go a little deeper in your discovery and your your time with Holy Spirit, the teacher. Okay, That's the first thing we learned. Number two, as written at face value. Oh, excuse me. Number two, sin is a big deal in the church. Would you agree? It's, it's, it's highlighting, whether this guy was a leader or, or whether he was just a, somebody in the congregation, it's highlighting to us that sin is a big deal. Hebrews says some very dangerous things about believers who willingly sin after they've accepted Christ. Go and take a look at it. It'll scare you to death. Right? The Bible is very, very clear. If we love him, by the way, love is equated with actual salvation. You can't get in if you don't love him. If you love him, you'll obey him. If you've got sin, ongoing sin in your life, you're not obeying him. Your love is in question. Ultimately, your salvation's in question. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul said about this believer in the church? We didn't get there, but he said, I've turned him over for the destruction of his flesh so that he might be saved someday. What's he say? He's saying this believer in the church is on dangerous ground in his life. He needs to repent, and his church needs to address this issue. Sin is a big deal. We can't sweep it under the rug. We have to deal with it, and it's dealt with in the context of family. It's dealt with often in the case of face-to-face, where we have people who love us enough to say, there's a better way to walk than that. God's created you for more than you are presently experiencing. Right? So that's, I don't know, second or third thing. Where is it? Number three. As written at face value, the Apostle Paul's approach would be unbiblical. We have, to, we have to understand that. As written at face value, this that we've talked about, the actions that we've outlined, cannot become the doctrine for all church discipline because it's inconsistent with the rest of the word, as so interpreted. Number four, Corinthians was written with gaps, which brings us to number five. We don't have the full story. We don't have the full story. And so I am inclined to believe that there was a whole narrative there, a whole process that we weren't privileged to, that make the actions that are unfolding now with this immoral believer in Corinth plausible and understandable and not in contradiction with the rest of the word. That's something we'll obviously talk about as we continue. So meditate on this this week. Read the passage. Read, uh, you know, read 1 Corinthians 5. Read 2 Corinthians 2. That's the concluding story. We're going to be wrestling with this over the next couple of weeks. And I think it's important for us to understand that the Bible is consistent. 
that it interprets itself, and that everything that we have taught is in alignment with 1 Corinthians 5, as you will see in the coming days. Amen? Father, we ask that you would reorient our thinking. God, that you would help us to see Scripture, your Word, like, like you see it, like you intended it, that we would see it as consistent with your beautiful Father heart. Holy Spirit, we give you permission. Teach us, guide us, release wisdom and knowledge and understanding that we could be ones who actually model the kingdom, that we could be about our Father's business, that when people see us, they see love and they glorify our Father who is in heaven because of it. Do that work in us, God, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you would like to contact us or would like more information about our church or additional podcasts or resources, please visit us online at harvestwarrensburg.com. We hope to see you soon.